Welcome to the LifePoint Palm Bay Sermon Podcast. We encourage you to make copies of this message, but please don't charge for those copies. If you'd like to know more about LifePoint Palm Bay, please visit lifepointpb.com. All right. Thank you, David. And thank you all, too, for um, adapting this morning to our different seating arrangement. How many of you came in and you were all confused and didn't know where to go, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I figured that would happen. It's good every once in a while to be stretched that way, but uh, it's nice to be able to come together. If you need a Bible this morning, just wave at one of our ushers. They have them for you, and if you've forgotten yours, home or in the car or somewhere. And um, look forward to being back with you tonight at 5 o'clock. I know that Art and Rose and their team have put together um, a really special presentation for you tonight, uh, along with just the Christmas carols that we'll sing and the candlelight, of course, ending the evening with the candlelight service, or the candlelight, I don't know what you call that, presentation, um, whatever. We light candles, all right? Real candles, not, batter, not battery-operated candles, nobody's going to hold up your phone, all right? Real, real, real candles. Um, we'll deal with the wax and all of that, but um, the real thing. Um, this morning, we're going to continue on. We started last week and talked about how to reject the Scrooge spirit. This morning, we're going to continue with that theme as we look at a Christmas carol. As a matter of fact, um, if I were titling this this morning, there are different ways you could title it. Um, a Gospel According to Dickens, uh, A Christmas Carol Gospel. You may not recognize it, but I hope before we're done this morning that the gospel message is all the way through A Christmas Carol. All the way through it. And it wasn't by accident. Dickens did it on purpose. There are, there's some debate, especially in recent years, about Dickens and his faith. And was he a believer or not? Because Dickens was very vocal against the church. Um, he was one, he was not shy about writing his disapproval of what he called religiosity. And he's, in, if you read his own words, he was very, very much against this whole idea of having religious ritual, going and doing our service, um, or going to services, going to the things that we normally do, having certain dogma or certain words that we speak, but not having actions that match up to that. As a matter of fact, if you read Dickens, any of his work, you're going to find that he has these characters, those who often are poor or destitute or in need, and yet they have a quality, a character about them that's lovely, that's winsome, that's, that causes people just to want to be around them. And then you'll have those often who have resources, have wealth, have what they need, and they are the meanest per- people you'll ever meet. And so Dickens does this often in his writings. He was once asked, as a matter of fact, there was a pastor one time who wrote to him, kind of critical, that Dickens was not more overt in his presenting of the gospel. And Dickens said, every character I write about, you will either find the spirit of the New Testament at work in them, or you will find the opposite. And if you go through Dickens' stuff, you'll begin to see this as you read his work. If you're interested in this kind of thing, I can recommend a book to you if you'd like to know more about it. It's a book called God and Charles Dickens. And the man who did it, he was actually doing his PhD on Charles Dickens. And then with his thesis, when he finished, he just turned it into a book. And it is excellent because it's mainly just quoting Dickens himself. Did you know that Charles Dickens wrote a harmony of the Gospels? 
if you're familiar with it, a harmony of the gospel simply means you take the four gospels and the stories that are in them and you harmonize it. You put them together in kind of a narrative, in a story form. Because the first three, what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have very similar, if not the same, stories repeated. Okay, But the book of John is different. It's a different time period in Jesus' life and ministry. And so it has different accounts that you don't find in the others. And so it was very popular, especially in, in the, the mid-1800s in Victorian England, to write a harmony of the gospel. And Dickens did this, but he did it specifically for his children, for no one else. He wrote a harmony of the gospels. He called it the life of our Lord. And he wrote it specifically for his children. As a matter of fact, he made... He, he made sure that it could not be published until after all of his children had died. So in 1934, they finally published The Life of Our Lord by Charles Dickens. As you go through it, you'll begin to see that Dickens had strong faith. There was a clear belief, as Jesus, in his own words, that Jesus Christ is the central theme, the central character of the entire world and of all human history. That everything is based on that. Now, the thing for Dickens, and as I began to read through some of this, I got a little concerned because it sounded like, as I first began to read, that he thought that salvation and that following Jesus was about good works. And I first read this, and I think Dickens was one who felt like, okay, it's our good works that bring about salvation. It's, our, it's trying to imitate Jesus and be like him that gives us credit and righteousness with God. But if you go through and, and read through the life of our Lord, you will find that Dickens described Jesus in three ways. He described him as our Savior, as our Redeemer, and as our example, or our exemplar. And these, in other words, our the one that we are to imitate. But he was very, very clear in this, that we, mankind needs salvation. He needs redemption. And then when that redemption comes, it needs to work itself out. It needs to be seen in good works. Dickens sat down in 1843, just before Christmas, and he began to write the story. He had recently returned from a trip to the United States. I have to say, he wasn't very impressed with us folks when he got back. Um, he, he described Americans as, as vociferous, gregarious. Um, he thought we were loud and obnoxious most of the time. And, of course, this was coming from someone who was very, a very staid Brit, so, I mean, we would come across very loud and obnoxious, and sometimes we really are. But he, um, he came back, but he was stirred. He was stirred by what he saw as he felt like this spirit of greed and materialism in the United States. And then, of course, he, and back in England, they have the same thing. It, it dressed itself up a little differently. But he's, he's bothered by it. He's bothered by the, the coldness and the callousness of people. He's bothered by the fact that all around him, he sees need. He sees people in need. And no one seems to care. So he sits down and he begins to write a story because Dickens, the purpose in, in his whole life of writing was he was not going to share the gospel blatantly. He was going to share it in narrative and story form, but to cause, to draw people in. So that they would then have to wrestle with, if you'll read his introduction to A Christmas Carol, he talks about this. His desire was that we would take this haunting little story and yet not be haunted by it, but that it would dwell in our homes. So Dickens begins writing this story that he called A Christmas Carol. 
He really saw it as a carol in the traditional sense of 1843, a musical story about Jesus, a musical story that conveyed the message of the gospel. That's how he saw it. If you read the original Dickens and, and his A Christmas Carol, it begins what we would call the chapters. They begin, he call them staves. So if you look in an old copy, you'll see stave one, stave two, stave three, stave, or we might say stanza. Or in our vernacular, we would say verse. He saw this as a, as a musical song. And stave one, he begins. And he introduces us to two people primarily. There are others that show up with two main characters. The first is Jacob Marley. As a matter of fact, the very first words of this A Christmas Carol is Jacob Marley was dead. That's the first words as he starts this story. He will say that he will repeat that four times in the first four paragraphs of the story. Jacob Marley was dead. And then he will introduce us to Ebenezer Scrooge. Because what he wants us to see is this premise, the very first aspect of the gospel message, which we were all born dead in our trespasses and sins. And that some are dead, literally physically dead and spiritually dead, and there is no hope of redemption at that point. And then there are others who are still alive, but they're just as dead, like Scrooge. As a matter of fact, he based all of this on a very familiar passage of Scripture, which is in Hebrews chapter 9. I want you to see this with me. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 27. And by the way, when you have some time later on, Go back and read more of this chapter than just these two verses because the, we often pull, especially verse 27, out by itself, but it's part of a longer narrative. A, a, really a great, it's good news, it's great news. But when you pull out verse 27, I remember as a kid hearing this verse and it scared me to death, all right? I think that was the intent, was to scare me to death. By the way, that's one of the things that Dickens had against the church. He really felt like it was awful to take the good news of the gospel and try to scare people into heaven. He, he really did, and he fought against that. But I would hear this verse as a kid, and it would scare me. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. And I remember growing up as a kid, and preachers were, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. It's coming. It's coming for you. It's coming for you. The judgment's coming. I don't want the judgment. I mean, that just sounds bad. I don't want the judgment. Do you realize that's one verse in this whole story here? And, and Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 is an awesome chapter. It's part of my four favorite chapters in all the Bible. Hebrews, starting in, in Hebrews chapter 7, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Those four chapters together, just incredible. But notice what he says. And just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It's good news. It's good news. The judgment for me, the judgment for you if you know Christ, one day is I'm in Christ. My that's the judgment for me. That's God's judgment for me. He is in Christ. All sin has been paid for. All of it. Every bit. Dickens understood this but he also realized that many did not. So he begins his little story dealing with the sinfulness of man. The fact that we're born in sin, that we're all going to die, 
and that dying apart from Christ is judgment. It is you and me standing on our own merit, trying to satisfy a righteous, holy God based on our own good works. And that's an impossible task. Dickens named his characters in interesting ways. You have Jacob Marley, and you also have Scrooge himself, Ebenezer Scrooge. I love the fact that he called him Ebenezer because Ebenezer means up to this point God has provided. But Scrooge was a term literally that meant to squeeze, to grind. As a matter of fact, Dickens refers to this in his own writing. Notice what he says about Scrooge. He says, Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scrapping, clutching, covetous old sinner. His name literally meant that. That's what the name meant, to to squeeze, to clutch, to grasp. This was Scrooge. He was alive but dead, just like Jacob Marley. Bound but didn't know it. You see the picture, uh, if you go back to the previous picture, see the chains in Jacob Marley? Because if you read Scrooge, he's, he's bound up in them. And he says in this first stave, he says, these are the chains of my own making. And Ebenezer, yours are heavier and weightier than mine. He goes, Ebenezer, we were wrong. We were wrong. We live life for ourselves to make money, to pursue what we thought was right, and we were wrong. So Jacob comes. Literally what Dickens is doing is he's taking and really rewriting a narrative, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Remember, the rich man opened his eyes in hell and he said, would you at least send Lazarus to my brothers to warn them? And Abraham said, well, even if one goes from the grave, they won't believe. So Dickens writes in this story that he's creating, he's basically taking what would have happened if, suppose, someone from the dead goes back to someone who is still living to tell them, hey, here's what you're doing and here's where it leads. So Dickens writes his story that way. But he takes in this first stanza, this first stave, and he says, man is sinful. He's greedy. He's selfish and self-centered. It's about himself. How many of you, when you have, you have a child in your home or a grandchild, how many of you have classes and teach them how to be selfish? How many of you do that? So that means none of your children or grandchildren are selfish, right? No, just the opposite, right? I, I like to jokingly say, our, first, our children's first words were not mom or dad or daddy or anything. No, it was mine. That was their first word. Mine. We're born that way. Dickens is communicating this in, the, in stave one. We're born in sin. We're born separated from God. No hope. Bound in chains. And without something or someone intervening, we end up like Jacob Marley. So also as we go through this, think, well, why did Dickens use the term ghost? Remember, this is 1843. And if you were reading your Bible in 1843, you would hear much about the Holy Ghost. Some places still, some church culture still call it the Holy Ghost. I don't particularly like that because I think in our vernacular today, it doesn't come off real well. But he meant the spirit. Matter of fact, you'll read on through the, a Christmas carol, often Dickens will refer to them as spirits. 
Dickens either had one of two things in mind, and I don't know which. He was either thinking of visitation by the Holy Spirit himself, who was coming, in different, manifesting in different ways, or angels, messengers, carrying the message of God to Ebenezer Scrooge. Not ghost as we would think about it in a ghost story. So you deal with salvation, first of all, in stave one. And then you come to that next picture where the first spirit, or ghost, appears to Ebenezer Scrooge. You remember who it is? Who's that first spirit that appears to him? Of past, yes, of things in the past. So he comes and he takes Scrooge on this journey back into his past. And if you read the book, it has lots more. Most of us have seen film. We've seen film versions of this story, which often leave out certain things. But if you, li- if you read Dickens, his writing, you'll see all the places that he went. He saw his childhood. He saw things that he was, re- just the enjoyment, the thing when his heart was free and when it was open. He saw his sister whom he loved dearly, his sister who would die in childbirth, giving birth to his nephew that comes in the very first stave. Remember, his nephew comes into the office and wishes him a Merry Christmas. This is when we hear the first use of that word that is so connected with Ebenezer Scrooge. You all know what it is. What is it? Bah humbug, which was simply a a colloquial phrase of that day, which meant nonsense. Nonsense. I love that. It's one of my favorite parts in there. You're poor. Why do you have cause to be merry? And the the nephew says, Uncle, you're rich enough. Why do you have cause to be so morose and grumpy? So Scrooge gets a visitation from the spirit that takes him back to the past to to see his sister that he loved in the childhood and the memories that he had, and then as he gets a little older, to see the apprenticeship where he worked and the people who, who care for him, the master, his master in that term of master and apprentice, who was so loving, he and his wife who were so loving, and this, the Christmas party that they had and how much he, looked, he and his fellow apprentice looked forward to that and the merriment that they had and, and just the heart. There's a picture in there, too, of Scrooge's master and his wife inviting all different levels of society to come in. You had all different, it didn't matter about their economic background, it didn't matter about their social standing. You had all of these different ones, and there was food, and there was dancing, there was merriment, there was joy. And so Scrooge goes back, and he sees this, and he's remembering. And then he takes him to the part which is usually included in most movies, the one he loved that he rejects for money. So he never marries, because he chooses money over love. So in this stave, stave two, stanza two, verse two, Dickens gives us another picture. He says, in stave one, there's sinfulness of man. In stave two, there's regret. We would call it in Christian terms, conviction. Conviction begins to happen, which is exactly what happens in the gospel, in the gospel message for us. There is an understanding, a revelation of sinfulness And then there's a regret. There's a conviction that comes. And you begin to see this in Ebenezer Scrooge. As a matter of fact, if you read the story, he tells after the first spirit comes to him, I have been much changed by this. He says, I don't really need any of the other spirits. Remember, Jacob told him, there are going to be three that come to you. He says, I don't need the others. I've been much changed by this first one. He said, oh, no, you haven't. You've only started the journey. 
So he moves from the ghost of Christmas past to present. What we would know as stave three, or what Dickens calls stave three. And here, he has this spirit who takes him and shows him what's happening in different people's lives at that moment. He takes him and he's able to see what's going on at Bob Cratchit's home. Now, you remember Bob Cratchit. Bob is the one who works in the office for Mr. Scrooge and is treated so poorly by him. Literally, Scrooge freezes him to death because he won't allow him to stoke the fire. He begrudgingly gives him the whole day of Christmas off, but he reprimands him for it. But Bob Cratchit has this spirit. He's another one of those Dickens characters who has what he calls the spirit of the New Testament. There's a, there's a humility about Bob Cratchit. There's a joyfulness in spite of the man that he works for and how he has to spend his days. Cratchit, many believe, was a term that Dickens used because there was a term of the day, cratch. They believe it came from that word cratch, which was used for the manger. And so many believe that even in that, Dickens was wanting to give a picture of Christ being born in a manger. Hope that was there. You see hope in the form of this man, Bob Cratchit. Cratchit is with his family. He's gone to church with Tiny Tim, and he's come back, and the family, they, they, they have the food that they have prepared. It's meager as it is, they've, they've done all they can. If you read through it, Mrs. Cratchit has taken the clothing and... In, in Dickens' own way, she has remade it and then added ribbons. Basically, what he's saying is he's, he's emphasizing how poor they are. She basically took the clothing, the best clothing that they had, she and the children, she took it apart, reassembled it the other way out. So the material that was on the inside, which would be less worn, was now on the outside. And then where there were still bare places and it looked really bad, she would use ribbon to cover that up. He's, Dickens is painting this picture for you of how poor, the poverty that they have, the difficulty that they have, and yet the joy that they have. There's something different. And Scrooge is seeing it too. There's something different. They come to this place in the meal, remember, where Bob Cratchit gives thanks for Mr. Scrooge, and his wife can't join in in that, and there's conversation goes on. But Ebenezer Scrooge is beginning to see in Bob Cratchit, there's something different here. A man who's so mistreated by one who has so much, and yet there's a thankfulness in his heart to God for Ebenezer Scrooge. He takes him to another home, the home of his nephew, and there again there's conversation about Ebenezer Scrooge. In this place, you see, and I love this, you were talking about Dickens in the gospel. The nephew says that as long as his uncle is alive, every Christmas he will go and wish him Merry Christmas and invite him in to what he's missing. I love that picture. No matter how mean Ebenezer Scrooge may be, no matter how often he may reject, as a matter of fact, as the nephew looks at it and says, he's only hurting himself, he's not hurting me. But as long as I'm alive and as long as he's alive, a Christmas will not pass, but I will go and I will wish him Merry Christmas and I will invite him into what he's missing. Scrooge begins to see all of this 
And then he uses a very important word. If you read the old story that Dickens wrote, it says that Scrooge repents. He repents. See, when he sees the spirit of Christmas present, he moves from the sinfulness and selfishness of man to the regret and conviction that we saw in stave two to now there's a repentance. There's a changing of mind and heart. This says, I have been wrong. I have thought in a wrong way about this. But he's not done. You would think repentance is good. It, it stops there. Can I tell you that we can see our sinfulness, we can have regret and conviction over what we have done or what we have left undone. We can even say, you know what, I'm going to think in a new way about this. But we're not finished at that point. That's not the end. That's not salvation as we know it according to the New Testament. He goes to the next part, stay four, the fourth verse, if you will. The ghost of the future, spirit of the future, Christmas the future. He's a scary individual. Can't see his face, can't see anything about him except his eyes in the story Dickens says. And he doesn't speak at all, he just points. But he points him toward things, and Dickens has Scrooge begin to fill in the blank for you as he tells the story. Scrooge is figuring things out. He lets him see the funeral the death of someone that nobody seems to mourn at all. As a matter of fact, they just joke and laugh and, and actually thieves break in and steal the goods of this person who has died. Now, the Spirit doesn't allow him to see who this person is, but, but Scrooge is thinking, well, how awful that someone would be treated this way in death, not realizing that it's himself that has died. He won't see that until later in the story. But then he's also taken to the home of Bob Cratchit again. And now Tiny Tim is dead. And yet there, is, there are those who are mourning over him. There are many who are moved. There is this celebration of God, this worship of the Lord, even in Tiny Tim's death. As a matter of fact, there's a scene when Tiny Tim and his dad are going to church in the story where Tiny Tim says, you know, I hope that people see me walking with my crutch and lame and feeble, and they will be reminded of him who healed the blind and the lame. This was the message. This was the ministry of Tiny Tim, wherever he went. And so in his death, there were many who mourned him. There were many who were moved by his life and honored God in his death. And, and Scrooge is moved by this, but he's also moved by the fact, does Tiny Tim have to die? Does it have to be this way? Could he not live? If things changed, could this also change? And then it's the Spirit takes him to the cemetery where he will see himself. He will see Ebenezer Scrooge and the writing on his tomb, himself dead. He's the one that nobody mourned. No one cared that he, was that he had died. And thieves broke in and stole all that he had hoarded and sold it off. And you see in this final verse, if you will, Scrooge falls down as he's grabbing hold of the Spirit. And it says he prayed. He prayed. And in that moment, he received. Salvation took place 
at the moment that Scrooge received. He believed prior. That's what all this is doing, bringing him to a point of believing. But when he gets to stage four, to verse four, if you will, now he receives. And John says, to as many as what? Receive him. To them he gave the right, the authority, to be called the sons and daughters of God, children of God. He received. Salvation comes in verse 4. Dickens wants to make sure that you understand that faith without works is dead. It was the, it was the heart cry of Charles Dickens in all of his writings. He believed that there was salvation in no other than Jesus Christ. By the way, that is the story of Christmas. That's why we gather here today. There is salvation in no other than Jesus Christ. You say, maybe there's another way. There's some other beliefs and other things. There are other beliefs. The problem with Christianity, it's a very narrow belief system. Jesus said it was narrow. I didn't make it that way. Jesus said this is a narrow way. Here's how narrow it is. You can believe on me and you can be born again. If you don't, you're not. It's that narrow. There is no other way. Christianity by its very nature is exclusive. Not in the way we often think of in a worldly sense. It's exclusive in this way. I must believe it. I must receive it on Jesus' terms. I can't receive it on my own. Scrooge comes out and he wakes from his dream where he sees these different spirits. And now it says something about him. He can't stop laughing. You remember that? He can't stop laughing. His joy, you know, as a matter of fact, he says something very interesting. He says, I don't know how long I have been in the spirit world. I don't know what day this is. He says, I am as a babe. Because in this last, in the end of this story, there is rebirth. He is born again. And he's laughing. There's joy and he knows that other people are laughing and mocking his newfound joy, and he doesn't care. He does not care. Dickens says that he lived the rest of his life. He celebrated Christmas as no one else. And even though others mocked him and thought maybe he had lost his mind, he knew very differently. He had been born again. He had been changed from the inside out. And that change did something immediately. It allowed him to be a giver instead of a taker. It allowed him to see other people and care about them. It allowed him to have a joy that was unspeakable and full of glory, as the scripture talks about. You understand now why I would call this the gospel according to Dickens? He just lays it out there in a Christmas carol. This was his intent, I believe, all along. He wrote it that way. I believe it's why it has endured all of these years. It's still a favorite at Christmas time for people. Now, we've taken out a lot of these pieces, and with every generation, we lose more and more of it. But this is the story. I've, I skipped over some scripture as I was going through this because I just got, I was into telling you the story. So let's go back and look at some of the scripture I missed. Can we back up a little bit? Um, can we back up another? Here because there is a, 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 a brokenness, a repentance, a regret. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. 
Dickens is writing a character where you can see this, where there's a brokenness that begins to take place. And then there are a number of verses where he talks about repentance, and I want to show those to you. Um, beginning, there we go, beginning in 2 Corinthians. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved. This is a perfect, this is a perfect verse for what happens in A Christmas Carol. Because Dickens goes back and he's shown all of this, and it causes him to be grieving and anxious and afraid and all these things. Paul says, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There is a difference between godly grief, godly sorrow, and worldly sorrow. Godly grief, worldly, or godly grief or godly sorrow points me to Jesus. It, point, it brings me there to receive what he offers. Godly grief or ungodly griefs, worldly grief or worldly sorrow leads me in the opposite direction. I thought about today and this story because it's so familiar to us. And I realized that so often in these familiar stories, we miss Jesus. We miss the gospel. We miss the good news. There's nothing wrong with all the decorations and all the food and all the gifts and all the things that are part of this, the traditions. There's nothing in and of themselves that are wrong and all of that. But if we're not careful, we get so distracted with all of that that we miss the real heart of this season. We miss the real message. It's Jesus. By the way, some of you are sitting here, many of you are sitting here, and you say, I know Jesus. I have been born again. I know what Ebenezer Scrooge experienced because I've experienced it. But I want you to understand something, that even as believers, this process still works in our life. How many of you as a believer have sinned? That's pretty much everybody, all right? And the one that didn't raise their hand, you're now sinning, all right? So, you know, so we're all included. Even as a believer, I'm reminded of my sinfulness. I'm reminded again often when the Holy Spirit shows me there's regret. There's regret, there's conviction over sin. Can I tell you something? I remember, and this has happened a number of times through the years where I'd pray with someone to receive Christ. And then they would either very soon or a few days later, they would say, I'm not sure it worked. Matter of fact, I felt this way, that it didn't work. When I, matter of fact, as a teenager, I got saved dozens of times, all right? I kept going back and praying the prayer over and over because I thought, this didn't work because I feel like a worse sinner now than I did before. That's good news. That's great. If you feel like a worse sinner after you pray, that's great. Why? Because the Spirit of God now resides in you and He convicts you with things that may not have bothered you before. They do now. That's evidence of God at work in you. So when you and I sin as believers and there's conviction, that's good. That's not a bad thing. Nor does God see it as a bad thing, as something that causes you and me to have to run away from God and hide from God because he's angry with us or he's displeased with us. No, he's faithfully revealing to us. He's doing in us what he said he would do. To bring me to the point where I would recognize and regret, have conviction over sin, and then I would repent, have a new way of thinking, 
Repentance is the Greek, it's two Greek words, metanoia. It literally means to think again, to think in a new way, to see it. And it's more than just a thought, it's something that changes within me. So that I repent, but don't stop there. Then I receive. You say, well, I've already received Jesus, I'm born again. Can I tell you something, folks, as your pastor? I receive Jesus fresh and new every day. Every day. Multiple times throughout the day, I receive him fresh and new. I'm not getting saved all over again. I'm not getting converted over and over again. I'm receiving him, his lordship, his life, in every part of my being. This story of Dickens, this, this Christmas carol gospel, is still good news for us even if we know Jesus. Because the process is still there, I receive. And when I receive, and I would tell you this as testimony, every time I receive, I am made new. Something in me changes. Something is, is new. There's life experienced that I didn't know before, in a way I didn't know before. This is who Jesus is. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Dickens was so upset with the church because they were trying to sell a dead, dry theology. He said, Jesus isn't that. He's alive. He's at work. He's at work in you and me. And when he's at work in you and me, we are constantly changing and we're constantly caring. We're caring about someone else other than ourselves. This is the gospel according to Dickens. It is the gospel according to Scripture. It is the good news. I would challenge you today, if you've never received, today's the day. Receive today. If you have received, but you're in a place right now where you're not receiving, you're not receiving new life, you're not receiving the new work that God wants to do within you, that Jesus wants to work in you as a believer, and receive today. Acknowledge. Have that conviction. Allow that conviction to do its work. Repent and receive. Experience, rebirth, new life. Again, I'm not talking about being saved all over again. Do you understand that when the Bible talks about salvation, it talks about salvation that is past, salvation that is present, and salvation that is future? It talks about all three. I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. It's all three. So when someone asks me and says, are you saved? I say, which one? Have I been saved? Yes. Am I being saved? Yes. Will I be saved? Yes. It's all three. This is good news. This is good news. This means you and I aren't doing it in our own strength and our own power. We don't have to because a gift was given. We're going to talk about that for just a few minutes tonight. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. A gift has been given. The greatest gift of all time. It is the Son of God and life that he brings. If you have not received him, I, I plead with you, do so today. Today. Would you bow your heads with me? Or would you come play? And right where you are, I realize that this is um, a different day. It's Christmas Eve. I'm sure many of you have thoughts and plans and things that are happening this afternoon and tonight.
none of that is more important in this moment than what, what the Holy Spirit wants to say to you. None of it. So in this moment, putting all the rest of that aside, can I ask you, have you received the greatest gift that was ever given? And it was given for you. It was given for me. It was God becoming flesh, taking on human form, being born in a manger, but the story doesn't stop. He grows. He lives a sinless, perfect life as a human being. Both God and man. He dies an awful death because of the sins of mankind. He takes all of it on himself. He is put in a grave. Three days later, he rises. He spends 40 days on this earth walking about. Many saw him. Many heard him and talked with him. And then the scripture says he ascends back into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, where he daily, constantly makes intercession for you and me. As many as believed him and received him, to them he gave the power. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not come to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. To many as believed and received, they are not condemned. Those who believe not are condemned already. So today, if you believe if today by the moving of the Holy Spirit you want to receive and right where you are you just simply tell him, Jesus I receive you I repent I recognize I am sinful I was born in sin I have lived in sin but I repent I choose you you are my only hope I believe that today, and I receive you. You just tell him. You don't even have to use the exact words I use, your words. But you just tell him, Jesus, I receive you. I believe and I receive. Here's my challenge to you if today you believed and received. Tell someone. Tell someone. You can come tell me before you leave. You could tell someone here maybe you came with today. Someone in your family who you know is a believer. Tell someone who's a believer. Let them rejoice with you. Let them walk alongside with you. Let us help you. So what it is to grow in this thing called the Christian life. But tell someone.
say it's personal and private, Troy. I just want it to be just something inside just me and the Lord. The change that took place in Scrooge, everybody could see. When Jesus changes you and me, you cannot hide it. It's not supposed to be hidden. It's not supposed to be. He is the light of the world, and he says, I want to shine through you and let my light shine through you. I want you to be the light of the world. A city set on the hill that cannot be hidden. We don't put it under a bushel. We don't hide it under a basket. We put it on a candlestick so it can give light to all. Lord Jesus, I pray today for those who do not know you. Lord, I pray for those who maybe think they know you. Maybe they've done the church thing. Like Dickens would say, they understand religiosity. But they don't know you personally. I pray, God, today, Lord Jesus, I pray, everyone in this room, that you would pour out your grace and we would respond to that grace and we would know you personally and intimately. Not just in theory, not just in our minds. Lord, I know that's possible. I know it is. I know that this thing called Christianity is more, it's more than what most of us have seen or known. Lord Jesus, I ask for that today. In all of us, I ask for it. Peace, joy, a grace, a gentleness, a forgiveness. Lord, a way of living that is so different than everything around us. Lord, thank you for what you're doing. We just praise you. We give you honor and we give you glory. Before we finish this time of prayer, if you're a believer today, and yet you would say, I don't have joy as a believer. I don't have peace. I don't have an excitement about being a follower of Jesus. A Christmas carol is for you too. Jesus wants to work in you, not just salvation so that you go to heaven when you die. He wants to change you now, that you experience him now, his presence now, his joy now, his grace now. his peace now no matter what's going on Lord I pray that for each one who knows you today take us further than we've been Lord we receive the gift of you not just the gift of not going to hell. Lord, that, if you just wanted to keep us from going to hell, you could have done it all kinds of ways. 
Lord, we receive more than that. We receive you. And all that that means, life and life eternal, life to the fullest, life abundant. Not death, but life. We want it. We believe that you give it and that you are that life. And so we receive you in fresh and new ways today in this place. And may it show up most evident right in our homes and then moving out from there. We praise you and we thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's good to be with you today. It's a blessing. Um, I just challenge you, encourage you, no matter what you're doing in the next couple days, remember Jesus is first. When he's first, everything else makes sense. When he's not, it doesn't matter what else you do. It really doesn't. If we can help you in any way, we can pray with you about anything. We'll, there'll be folks around here. I'm up here. There'll be other prayer partners around. If there's anything going on in your life we could pray with you about, we'd love to do that. Lord willing, we'll see you back here tonight at 5 o'clock. God bless you. You're dismissed. <laughs>